Well, welcome. Whew. Can I get just something off my chest? It's kind of just been sitting there, making me feel like I'm going to explode. Can I welcome you for the first time to City Life Suffolk? I know other people did, but the first time from the mic here to say welcome to City Life Suffolk. It's a big deal. You might have caught on by now. We're celebrating not only the launch here, but our 10-year anniversary. Yes, we are one church in three locations. So our Newport News location is celebrating 10 years tonight. Some of the people in the plant team were a part of Newport News for 10 years. And now they're here tonight planning another campus because we believe in a church that believes in building God's kingdom, advancing his kingdom. And something else we found out, as Anthony already hit on over 10 years, is we like to eat together. We like to find excuses to consume food together. So maybe you're counting calories, do that tomorrow. I'm going to run tomorrow, I'm going to work out tomorrow, but tonight we're going to celebrate. We've got these um, cards out there on the table. Just says, let's celebrate minutes after service. Four restaurants, we've called in advance, letting them know, hey, we're going to be bringing crowds there to celebrate our church's launch. So I want to encourage you, as Fred encouraged you in that video, let's get rooted in community starting tonight. Be intentional on your way out tonight. Find somebody, maybe you met them for the first time, say, hey, where are you going? What are you going to eat? And then meet up with them, and let's get rooted tonight. Amen? We good? So 10 years, three campuses, and we've had one central vision and message throughout. And that message is simple. It's heaven now, heaven forever. Heaven now, heaven forever. And what that means is when we make a vow of devotion to Christ, when we say, I want to follow Jesus Christ, that eternal life isn't something that we just wait for at the end of our days. That eternal life is not just on the length continuum, but it's in the depth continuum. That, that we're not called in this life to just take up space, to wait and twiddle our thumbs till Jesus comes back. There's callings, destinies, and purpose on every life in this room. That's a part of what we say when we say heaven now, heaven forever. It's capitalized like that on purpose because the heaven to come is going to be infinitely more glorious than what we taste in this life. And yet, we see in scripture that God wants to whet our appetite for that with a, with a heaven here, a home we experience here on earth. One of the central verses for city life is Psalm 27, 13, which says, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And then there's another verse I love. It's in Galatians. Excuse me, 2 Corinthians 5, 5, it's the message version. It says, the spirit of God whets our appetite by giving us a little taste of what's ahead. He puts a little of heaven in our hearts so that we'll never settle for less. Heaven now, heaven forever. And there's a verse that's kind of similar from a chapter I want to launch this entire series out of. And you, you may have heard it before, it's Jeremiah 29, verse 11. And it says this, it says, for I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. So by a show of hands, no shame if you haven't, who's heard that verse before? Right? If you've been in the church for more than five minutes, you've probably heard that verse before. If you step foot in the Lifeway or a Christian bookstore, it's on mugs, it's on journals, it's on t-shirts, it's on graduation cards, right? It's all over the place. But real quick, I want to look at the context behind that verse. Context is key throughout scripture, but especially with this passage. And I want to read real quick verses four through seven which precede this, which gives the context for verse 11. It says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, 
Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So this is the context to Jeremiah 29.11. And, and, and God says, hey, I carried you into exile. And maybe you read this verse and you're thinking, exile right here doesn't sound that bad. Exile right there kind of sounds like Little House on the Prairie, right? You've probably seen episodes of Survivor that sound worse than that. But let's just look at how they ended up in exile. Babylon sieged the city of Jerusalem for 18 months, literally starving them out until they couldn't take it anymore. The king went to escape, gets captured, and, and the last thing he saw before they plucked out his eyes was they killed his sons right before him. They burn down the temple, ravage the walls of Jerusalem, and then take those people through a desert into exile where many of them would perish. This was the nation they were in exile. Babylon, this ruthless, evil nation. So much so, so legendary in their ruthlessness that in Palestine, when Jesus came and they were under Roman rule, code for Rome was Babylon. That's how they could talk about them without anybody knowing. They were that legendary for their ruthlessness. So that's the backdrop to Jeremiah 29, 11. And because of that, some people would say, hey, anytime you quote that, hey, you're taking it out of context. But part of what we believe here, part of our Pentecostal background and part of what we believe at the City Life Church is that the Old Testament, from the narratives to the wisdom to the prophecies, they reveal the heart of God. And they can speak to us about God's heart and what he wants from us. You know, if you take away the Old Testament, you take away the entire Bible that Jesus read. <laughs> that's what he memorized. That's what he quoted. That's what he lived so the full story of the Old Testament and the Israelites shows us that exile was and is instrumental in a teaching of God's people, the church, to be in the world but not of it. Jeremiah 29 is part of a scriptural witness that keeps talking about God's people as travelers, sojourners, aliens, and exiles whose true home is with God. Our true home is with God. But the New Testament perspective we now live in, we see that Jeremiah 29 speaks to all believers that we are in exile as we live out our witness in our lives. But we're called to be at home as members of God's people, his church. You see, as devoted followers of Christ, we may never taste fully on earth the home we will have in heaven. But church is given to us. God gives us his bride so that it can whet our appetite for the home we're going to find in heaven. Here's a... a Getting to know your, your pastor moment. I, I love animals. Honestly, I do. I'll hit on it later. Stefan, I love planet Earth, right? I love animals. I'm not big on pets. I like animals, but I like them like my TV shows. I like 30 minutes, maybe 60 minutes, and then where's the off button, right? Where do I put it? How do I get rid of it? But when we first got married, my wife and I have been married for almost five and a half years now. She met this little kitten, right, in this litter. Now, I'm not team dog, I'm not team cat, I'm not even going there. I like animals, genuinely. I just don't really like pets, but I was like, all right, if this is what's going to make her happy. Because cats, at least cats, right, you might not see your cat for 48 hours. It's still good. It doesn't need your attention. It doesn't need to walk. So I was like, hey, you can get a cat. I'll somehow deal with the fur, but I don't need to look at the thing, right? Cats aren't for people with low self-esteem because they don't need you. But, uh. We realized after a while as ministers, as pastors, that we were gone a lot for weeks, you know, camps, conferences, retreats, and we're just like, hopefully, we took good care of it. Me, I'm like, hopefully it's okay when we get back, right? 
had people check on it. We, we weren't, like, negligent. But we realized as we're moving down here to Chesapeake, especially because we were going to move twice. We were going to move to a place we were going to rent and then a place we were going to own. We already realized we weren't giving it all the attention it needed. We're like, let's go find a happy home for, for this cat where it can be cared for, right? Because cats are important, too. Because we liked animals, just didn't like pets. But we found a couple in Fort Eustace that wanted a cat. So we hop in our car with a cat, which we didn't do very often. This cat was terrified. And if you've ever been to Fort Eustis, you know when you get there, you have to pull out your license, registration. They have to look through your car. Josie was pretty chill. Josie was the name of the cat as we got there. But from the moment you set foot on Fort Eustis, you know I'm, I need to be on good behavior. You have bad behavior on Fort Eustis, you end up on the 10 o'clock news, right? The, you, so we went straight to the house. I don't remember how it works. I don't remember if houses or the, the rows of homes were letters and the numbers over the doors were numbers, or if it was the rows were numbers and, and the thing over the door was letters. Probably should have figured that out before we went there because we pulled up at dusk where, to my credit, sometimes there's a mix of dark and light. It's confusing. We pulled up to what we thought was the house. And, again, it's dusk, so the, the lights were all off. I'm thinking, well, maybe they just haven't turned them on yet. But we pulled up to it was either the correct number or the correct letter. And we, we get out of the car, and Steph texts, we're here. And, and the woman of the house texts, well, come on in. <laughs> so we walk up to the door. Still no lights on in the house. Look at each other. We knock. Nothing. Look at Steph's phone. Says, come on in. So we're like, maybe, maybe it's locked. It's unlocked. So we open the door. We take about three steps in and realize, this ain't right. <laughs> There's no noise at all. And, of course, right as we come to that realization, what happens? But a car pulls into the, the, the spot in front of the house, shining the lights down the hallway where I'm standing with my wife and this terrified cat. Now, I learned in that moment a lot about grace because I, I could have been any common vandal stealing this dude's stuff. He could have tackled me, ground and pounded me, and I would have just took it and just been like, sorry, my bad. But they had grace. They let us go. They were on the other side of the street. Another house with lights on in front of the porch and, and stuff. But uh, I'll tell you that story. Because in life, I think there's a lot of times where we just think, man, something's not right. This isn't the welcome I anticipated. It's almost like welcome, not home. Again, this idea of exile is not just about location. This exile we're speaking about can be a, a, a condition of the heart, of your soul. See, all the time in life, there's this low-grade gnawing in us that something, something's off. This wasn't what we created for. That realization might work it out in, itself out in fear, anxiety, stress. And I think sometimes in life, too, if we're honest, we forget the brokenness of the world because we're just so busy. And then we turn on the 10 o'clock news. Or something happens to us, a diagnosis in the family, relationships that are breaking or broken, getting laid off from a job, uh, struggling in a sin area we thought we were done with. You're reminded of your brokenness and the brokenness around us. And something at the soul level remembers Eden, this utopia, this home we were created for. And it groans for restoration. We feel like we're walking in the wrong house, this sense of welcome, not home. You see, home, according to Scripture, is a place where life flourishes fully, spiritually, physically, and socially. It's a place where life is sustained and where our most intimate relationships are nurtured. It's a place of rest, balance, and peace. And more above anything else, it's about relationship with God. That's what the Bible tells us about home. It's walking in relationship with God. But the story we find ourselves in is welcome not home. The story we find ourselves is exile waiting for a homecoming. The story we find ourselves in is in a dystopia 
longing for utopia again. Now, there's been a lot of, a run of dystopian movies that have been pretty successful recently. Uh, what am I, I'm drawing a blank, of course. Hunger Games, Divergent, thank you, Maze Runner. Those are just three. Maybe if you're one of those, those people that only watches movies that are going to score Oscars, maybe you haven't seen them. All right, maybe they're below you, but they have been pretty successful. There's been a run on these movies with a dystopian theme. And I think because it resonates, especially with our youth who are paying money to see these movies. Because a dystopia is the opposite of utopia. It's a creation of a degraded society that is generally headed to an irreversible oblivion. But there's a culture that people have bought into. It's broken. It's flawed. But there's a facade that makes it seem like it's the norm, like it's home. But in these movies and in life, we realize it's not. That true home, as we find out as Christians and believers, is in relationship with God. But it's our awareness of this dystopia that keeps us hungering for more. But there are three responses. When we become aware of, of the fact that we're in exile, that this isn't the way it was supposed to be, that the Bible gives us a better way, there are some responses we'll even find in the church that are, are rooted more in fear than they are in hope. The first is fortification, right? We put up walls. It's the bunker mentality. We hide, become holy hermits. That's not what we're called to. It doesn't take much reading of the Bible to realize we're not called to fortification. The second is domination. Where we engage in culture, but to condemn it. Where we engage in culture, but we under-adapt. And the conversations we have are more against flesh and blood than they are about powers and principalities. And in the end, we end up offensive, unpersuasive, and confusing. We end up like the gongs in 1 Corinthians 13. Because we might be speaking truth, but there's no love. So in a response to fortification and domination, I think the pendulum has swung sometimes in the church towards accommodation. Where you, in, you engage in the culture, you engage in the world around you, but you lose your identity. You can't call anybody to change because you've, you've, you've jettisoned the gospel. But there's a, a fourth way. And I believe Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7, helps outline that way. A way that's rooted in hope and not fear. A way that's rooted in Jeremiah 29, 11, that God has a hope and a future for us. So we don't have to settle for fortification, domination, or accommodation. How many of you guys notice when you walk in, I don't think we covered it up with the coffee. Right there when you walk into the left, Faith Lutheran buried a time capsule. That's pretty cool. Never done that. How many of you guys are a fan of time capsules? I thought, that's pretty legit. I want to know what's in there. Because it could just be a bunch of VHS tapes nobody's going to be able to play. And like Twinkies that somehow still haven't expired. It's probably cool though. Probably amazing. But they're going to unearth that time capsule whatever year's on there, years from now. And they're going to reflect on the faithfulness of God. They're going to reflect on something they buried when they first started this church and look back on the history and God's faithfulness here at this location. In, Je in Jeremiah 32, he buys a plot of land from a relative and buries the deed. Now, listen, this wasn't just any land. He's buying land from an occupied territory from an enemy who had conquered them, he had prophesied it was going to happen. From, from family that were probably just hoping he would let them off the hook so they could get rid of this property because it was going to be worthless soon. Now, Jason Kearney right here, he helped me find my last two homes, right? He would tell you it's probably not a sound investment, probably not the best investment to buy land in an occupied territory, a war zone, and then bury the deed. But that's if it's rooted in fear. See, Jeremiah, his purchase was rooted in hope. 
That was a prophetic gesture that, hey, we were going we're gonna to return here. Not just to that Jerusalem and old Jerusalem, but all throughout the Old Testament. We see prophecies about a new Jerusalem. And Jeremiah is pointing and saying, hey, we're going to return not just to Jerusalem, but to Eden, to relationship with God. We're going to be restored to relationship with the Father. How is it going to be ushered in? Through Jesus Christ. If you look at John 14, Jesus says, I am the way. Essentially, he's saying, look, you feel exiled. You feel like an alien. Jesus is the way back, the way back home to relationship with God. And again and again, you read through the Gospel of Luke, it says that Jesus is headed towards Jerusalem, that that's where he was going. And again, not just an old Jerusalem, but I believe prophetically, he was showing the way home to new Jerusalem. His miracles were signs and rare tastes of what's to come, of relationship, of utopia, and home restored. Jesus also says in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. There's a homecoming at the end of our exile. It's made possible by Jesus Christ. But Jesus didn't say, hey, hit the pause button until I get back. Just as God said to the Israelites in Jeremiah 29, he says, hey, build. Hey, multiply. Hey, do work. Build families, not just your families, but the family of faith. Build his kingdom. Again, we live in exile as we live out our witness in our age, yet we're called to be at home as members of his people, the church. Now, again, as I mentioned, I like nature. I like nature shows. Cord, right here in the second row, used to mock me because Steph and I's go-to date about five and a half years ago was to watch Planet Earth and get Chinese food, chill at her parents' house. Just watch Planet Earth for about two hours. Chinese food was good. Found out Sasha beef changed my life. Total rabbit trail. The Chinese place next to their house sells that. And somewhere under Jesus, probably in the top tens list, things that have changed my life, Sasha beef. Look it up. It's amazing. So I would order every time Sasha beef, and we would watch planet Earth. And I remember, I don't know which one had a lot about North America, talked about redwoods. Now, redwood trees are incredible. They grow up to 300 feet tall. They're massive. Their trunks can be 30 to 40 feet wide at the base. They're ginormous. And what's crazy is they last so long. There are trees out there in California that are 3,200 years old. Think about that. Been here since B.C. Been here since Jesus walked the earth, and they're still standing. So a tree that can grow to 300 feet and last that long, how deep do you think its root system goes? Any guesses? Deep, deep. There's no prize, so we don't ever force the issue. But, but if you dig down at the bottom of a redwood tree, those roots rarely go any deeper than 10 feet. A tree that's as tall as a football field rarely has roots that go any deeper than a basketball hoop. But here's the, here's the thing. If you look at the roots of a redwood tree, they don't go down deep vertically, but they reach out horizontally, sometimes as far as an acre. And they'll twist around roots of other redwood trees and over these centuries because they last so long. Those roots will fuse together. Literally, these redwood trees have other redwood trees that hold them down, right? You look in Psalms. In Psalms 92, David speaks of being transplanted into the Lord's house and flourishing in the courts of our God alluding to the courts of the tabernacle or temple where the people came to worship. He says in this environment that the godly will grow strong like cedars of Lebanon. 
Now, when David were to look around him, those cedars of Lebanon were the biggest trees he probably would find. Up to 100 feet tall, 6 feet wide at the trunk. But we know, hey, redwood trees around the world would have dwarfed those like Goliath dwarfed him. But here's the point. In life, we aren't called to put down roots into much. We're aliens. We're exiles. We're just passing through. But God calls us to invest eternally. When he says, hey, don't store up your treasures here on earth where moths are destroyed, he's saying invest eternally. One of the one places in this life that we can invest where it's always eternal is in the people around us. We can reach out, link arms with the church as it reaches out to reach other people. But we're called to take roots in this way. See, you can forsake fellowship, getting rooted with people around you, and you can just hunker down again, the the bunker mentality, fortification. But you're not going to glorify God much like that. Come on, we're called to more than just being holy hermits. And you can also forsake relationship, try to build yourself a platform. As I take a step up, (laughs) didn't know that was there. Got to get used to this. If I ever trip off of here, get it on YouTube. We'll go viral. We'll post it. But, uh, yeah, I'm still getting used to up here. Where am I going? You can grow as glorious as a redwood all on your own, forsake roots. But, you know, in 3,200 years, can you imagine the kind of storms that those trees have been through? And in those storms, what held them down? The trees around them, their root systems intertwined. You can build yourself a big platform, but when you do that without accountability, without relationship, without gathering, without reaching out to one another, you're just building yourself a bigger fall. Come on, we're called to put out roots, but as people in exile, our roots aren't supposed to go deep into this earth. As people at home in the church, our roots are called to connect with those around us. It's what, pe- what Paul calls the family of faith. In Jeremiah 29, when he talks about building homes, the, the word in the Hebrew is used for many things. But most often, what this word is used for is family. So he's saying, hey, build homes, but I'm not talking about four walls and a roof. I'm talking about households, right? Home is where the heart is. Build some relationships. God's church, again, like his miracles, it's supposed to give glimpses and what appetites for the home to come in heaven. Restored relationship with God. That restored relationship doesn't just start in New Jerusalem. There's a home, a lowercase heaven, for us to experience even in exile. So the question is, that's a good thought. That's a good vision. That's a good idea. But how do you make that reality? How do we walk that out? That I feel exiled and I want to feel at home in this life. I want the life that God offers. How do we walk that out? At City Life for years, Pastor Fred has referenced what he calls 12 pathways. What we talk about is 12 disciplines that will never, hear me, they will never result in our justification. But they will help us in our sanctification. If those are big words for you, guess what? Jesus paid everything we needed at the cross. But in those times in our life where we say, man, I feel like my faith is floundering. That's like a health checkup spiritually. You can look at those 12 things and say, hey, how am I doing here? How am I doing here? Usually you find there's two, three, or a couple where you're lacking. Fred's also said it's like slats on a barrel. You can only fill the barrel up as high as those slats go. So there's 12 disciplines we talk about commonly at City Life. And I believe they tie into what we're talking about out of Jeremiah 29, where God wants us to experience home here on earth before we ever get to home in heaven. If you look at Jeremiah 29, verses 12 through 13, it says, then you will call upon me. And come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. So you look at those first four of their prayer, fasting, worship, 
in Scripture. These are four we commonly think of when we think of seeking out God. These are what some people would call the inward disciplines, the inward pathways. But as we reflect on prayer, we reflect on Scripture, we realize that if our faith is focused inward all the time, then it's probably out of focus. Now, just to illustrate this, um, I know a lot of you are on Facebook. Some friends with you on Facebook. There's a picture circulating of this uh, log, not quite cabin, more like a log hut, probably the size of two of these stages. And it, it, it looked kind of nice. It's got a porch. Now, the, 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 the challenge is this. Could you leave behind your, your electronics, your phone, laptop, all that, stay in this log hut, whatever you want to call it, with all the food provided, all the liquids, waters provided, and all the firewood you'd ever need for a month, and then leave with $100,000? I said, yeah, I paid $100 to go to retreats like that, and the worst part of those retreats is listening to some of y'all snore, right? So I'm like, it gets to just be me. And I get out with $100,000, I'm like, yes, please. <laughs> Start our building fund. But here's the thing. That would be incredible in a way. Because I'm thinking, no electronics, but I can bring my guitar. I can bring my Bible, my journal. Think about the scripture I could memorize by myself for a month. Think about the, 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 I could read through so much of the Bible in 30 days. I could memorize worship songs, sing them to myself like an angel, right? I know I sound good because it's just me. Ain't nobody got to hear me. But after all that, here's the thing. If you spent a month praying, if you spent a month in God's word meditating on it, you wouldn't be content to stay in that hut. You realize, hey, I'm called to go out. I'm called to, to go out into the world and affect change and build God's kingdom. And that's what the rest of the pathways are about. And, and here's the thing. I'm, I'm breaking them into these groups, but they are all connected. You're going to look at some of these others that are about to come up. If you're praying guess what? You're going to be more accountable. If you're praying, you're going to be a better steward. If you're reading your words, you're going to be reaching more. If you're reading your words, you're going to live more generously. They're all intertwined. But again, we're not called to be holy hermits. And in Jeremiah, in verses 4 through 7, that we read at the beginning of this service, at the beginning of this sermon, he says build. He says all kinds of things to build. Fred has said it again. I'm going to quote Fred a lot. He's been my pastor for 10 years. It's weird. I preach now. I don't get, I got a podcaster. Weird. But uh, he said before, look, church isn't a cruise ship. It's not all inclusive. As glorious as those are, they're, they're battleships. There's work for us to do. Even under grace, you're going to break a sweat. You're called to work. See, part of our calling as exiles at home in God's church is to work to bring his kingdom here. I love that it says, seek the prosperity of the city to which I've called you to. That speaks to reaching or evangelism. That speaks to serving, generosity, and stewardship. These are what some would call outward disciplines, outward pathways. Again, if, a faith, if your faith, if our faith as a church is so inward focused that we never look out, then it's out of focus. We're called to these things. And I like that in Jeremiah 29, they don't say just build anything, but build homes. Again, this family that echoes this idea of, Build a family. You look at these pathways of relationship, gathering, accountability. Again, they're connected. I almost put reaching over there with these. But these are the corporal pathways, the disciplines of the body. Again, the church, the family of faith. It's how we get rooted. When you talk about Redwoods, when you talk about that analogy, that's what we're going to be preaching on next week. What does this family of faith look like? We're going to be hitting on Ephesians 2. That's your little preview. You can read that, get a taste. And then the last one. That I believe just gets neglected a lot in our culture, even as our church addresses our culture, is rest. We're going to spend a whole week 
on rest. Because here's the thing. You read the entirety of this passage from Jeremiah 29. They have been taken into exile. But God doesn't tell them to fight and to scrap. He almost tells them to, like, live this sedentary lifestyle. He says, hey, I took you into exile, right? That's deep. You can preach on that for weeks. But here's the thing. He is sovereign. He rules over everything. And because of that fact, no matter where we're at, we can rest. We can rest. We're going to spend a week on that as well. But those are the 12 pathways. As we work our way through those in the next weeks, we will see that the church of God maintains the hope of a home to come by living the kingdom now. Not just in talk, not just in ideas, but the hope of God scattered in exile, gathered in his church. In a world that sends the, the message so often, welcome not home, my prayer for the church, my prayer for this church, come on, the church universal, is that when people look to the church because they're weary, they feel the brokenness, they realize they're exiled, that we would be a church that says, welcome home. Welcome home. Come on, if I could have the worship team come up. We're not going back into worship yet. Don't worry. But I just, I want to hit on a couple things before I close. The first is this. You look at the pathways, just three points about those pathways we work through. It's not a, a, an all or nothing pursuit. I think sometimes perfection can be one of the biggest causes of procrastination. Can be. Not always. But sometimes we look at a list like that. I couldn't do all those at the same time well. And we just give up. Take one or two. Take a couple where you see they're lacking in your life and begin to work on them. God created in six days. You pair those up, you got six pairs of pathways. I believe that speaks to not only that creation, but us as new creations. Don't give up because you didn't look different one day later. Some of us spend, I know I did, decades of my life screwing up. And then we get two months into trying to be transformed. Like, why am I not further along? Come on, it's a process. We're justified in a moment. We're sanctified throughout our life. And come on, it's not an all or nothing pursuit. Don't let perfectionism, and that's a real thing, right? Matthew 5, 48, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. But don't let that keep you or, or, or cause you to procrastinate or throw up your hands and say, how? I'm not going to be perfect tomorrow. It's a process. I'm not going to be perfect the day I die. But we're called day in, day out to look more like Christ. Secondly, we don't avoid them out of fear of legalism. Because these aren't a sacrifice. When you look at them, they're a part of the prize. That we get to experience heaven now. Whet our appetites for the heaven to come by living like this. That's a part of the prize. And then lastly, we don't do them to get on God's good side. Again, these will never justify us, but they will help sanctify us. You could walk these pathways for a thousand years, and at the end you will be no more accepted than you were when you started. Because all of this, all it does is point back to Jesus. You know, Jesus, it says in Ephesians 2.13, says, now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. Because of Jesus Christ, you who were exiled, you who felt welcomed and not home, have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Here's the thing. Jesus was so holy. God was so holy that Jesus had to come and die for us. There was no way for us to walk any pathway that was going to restore relationship with a perfect, holy, and righteous God. We know that. But here's the second thing. Jesus was so loving that he was glad to die for us. And that's what's powerful. He died for us while we were still sinners. It says in Hebrews that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. 
Timothy Keller, an author, puts it like this. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dare believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. If this was a, a movie, a dystopian plot, Jesus is the hero. But he wasn't born into exile. The reality we see in scripture is he stepped into exile so that we could be brought home. If you look at Philippians 2, it tells us that Jesus left home in heaven. You look at Luke 2, it tells us that Jesus was born away from his earthly parents' home. In Matthew 8, 20, it tells us that Jesus wandered without a home or a place to lay his head. Hebrews 13 reminds us that he was crucified outside the city gates, essentially exiled. Why did he do all that? Why did he step willingly into that? So that we could be brought back home. Again, home being relationship with God. It's Jesus that gives us this. He took our place, experienced exile and death so that we could step into life, so that we could step into heaven for our, for, for, forever and heaven now, and we could step into home, the church, his gift to us. You might say, we're justified by faith. My faith feels stagnant, feels weak, feels like it's floundering. Well, I got good news for you. We're not saved by the amount of faith we have. We're saved by where we place our faith. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you might have a down season, but then you look at those pathways through that checklist. But you're saved because of where you place your faith. Not by how great you think you're feeling right now, but because of your faith in Jesus Christ. So here, I don't know everybody here tonight. I see some of my old friends all over the place. Crazy, somebody from high school is here in this place tonight with us. But I don't know everybody here, so I just want to give an invitation. If I could have everybody bow their heads. If you would say, I've lived in exile, I, I realize this, this feeling of welcome, not home. And I've never prayed a prayer that says, Jesus, I want the life that you offer. I don't want to just, just pick you up on a weekend and put you back down during the week. I want you to be Lord over my life. I want to devote my heart to pursuing you. If you've never prayed that prayer tonight, all I'm going to ask you to do right now is to raise your hand where you are so, so that I can pray that with you in this place tonight because we're going to go back into worship. And here's the thing. If that's you, I'm going to give an invitation for people to come forward at the end of service, you know, responding to different things. But if that's you, then come forward and find me. I want to pray with you. I want to give you resources. I want you to feel the life that God offers in this life, one we don't have to wait for, but one that is rich in death. And come on, maybe you would say, man, my faith, I've, I've prayed that prayer. <laughs> I've been in church, but I still feel in this season of life that I'm in, I just feel the brokenness around me and the brokenness in me more than I typically would. This reminder that we're in exile, it, it seems to chase me down every day. My faith feels like it's tossed about by waves. Guess what? That's frustrating. But in that frustration is an invitation. That invitation that we find in Genesis when God was searching for Adam and Eve all the way to the book of Revelation where he says, come. The spirit and the bride say, come. God the Father and his church the bride say come. So we're going to go back into this song, come to the altar. And we can take that literally tonight. If you're in a place where you would say, man, I just need a reminder that I'm welcomed home. Maybe I spent a season as a prodigal. I want to walk back in to the presence of God. We're going to sing this song. Let's take it literally. Let's come home.
Let's find a home here tonight. In Jesus' name. Just 